Amen. You grab your Bibles and open up to Romans chapter 11. It is so sweet to hear the testimonies of God's grace through the waters of baptism, isn't it? Um, I'm so glad that you are here to witness that and to rejoice in it. I, I do, however, feel bad for you that you will not be here in the second service to see even more of that. Um, although you're welcome to come back, the only stipulation is that you also have to sit through the sermon a second time. I'm just kidding. I read a story this week of a, a family years ago who went on a road trip. And uh, as happens, you need to stop and get some gas. And uh, at the same time, you often get out, maybe grab some snacks, go to the restroom. And that's exactly what this family did. However, the, the youngest child, their, their youngest son, was in the very back, back seat. And he was fast asleep when they pulled up into the gas station. And rather than wake him up, the family all went in and went to the bathroom and bought some snacks and did their thing. They came back out after paying for the gas, hopped in the car, and took off down the highway. About an hour down the highway, they looked in the back seat and realized that their youngest son was not there. Somehow, as they were paying for the gas or in the store, their youngest son had woken up and realized that they were at the gas station and wandered in to go to the bathroom himself. And they had just missed each other passing through. The father quickly realized what had happened and turned around and sped back down the highway all the way back to the gas station. And as he pulled in, they saw their youngest son sitting at the gas pump, head in his hands, looking down the road, watching and waiting. And when he got in the car, they all asked him, like, are you okay? Weren't you scared? And he simply looked at them and said this, no. I wasn't scared. I wasn't worried. I knew you'd come back for me. There are some Jews in the church in Rome who are asking this kind of a question. They're looking around them and they're asking and wondering if God is going to come back for the Jews. And the question that's being asked in this chapter relates to the future of ethnic Israel. What is God going to do with the Jews? And this question that's being asked is both practical and theological. Practical because, like I said, and like we've seen, Paul is looking around in the church, and what he's seeing is that God has chosen to save far more Gentiles than Jews. In fact, at this point in the life of the church, perhaps in Rome, there are very few Jews at all. So it's forcing this practical question, well, what about the Jews? But theologically, it forces this question, a question about the character of God, a question about the Word of God. Has God's Word failed? Will God do what He said He would do? And thereby, we can extract from that, is God trustworthy? And there's so much in our lives, especially as Christians, that hinge upon that question. That's the question that Paul has been primarily addressing all the way through Romans 9 through 11, and his answer is that God can be uh, truly trusted, that in no way has God's Word failed. So has God rejected His people? Paul's answer is no. So in this chapter, specifically chapter 11, Paul is dealing with Jewish unbelief, and he's telling us here that God has not rejected Israel completely or finally. Not in the past, 
Not in the present moment that Paul is writing his letter, nor in the future. That's what this chapter is addressing. And here, he is wanting us to see that there is a current remnant that exists. There has always been a remnant of Jews that exist. And I want to just pull out from this idea as we look specifically at the nation of Israel this morning. I want you to see that what is true of Israel as it pertains to salvation is actually true in at least two ways and applicable of all people that God is saving. So this isn't just about the Jews. This is ultimately about all the people that God has divinely and sovereignly chosen to save. And the first thing that we need to take note of as we read through this section is this, that God is still graciously saving. He's still graciously saving. Let's read from verse 1 down through verse 10 together. It says this, I ask then, has God rejected His people? By no means, for I myself am an Israelite, a descendant of Abraham, a member of the tribe of Benjamin. God has not rejected His people whom He foreknew. Do you not know what the Scripture says of Elijah, how he appeals to God against Israel? Lord, they have killed your prophets, they have demolished your altars, and I alone am left, and they seek my life. But what is God's reply to him? I have kept for myself 7,000 men who have not bowed the knee to Baal. So too at the present time there is a remnant chosen by grace, but if it is by grace, it is no longer on the basis of works. Otherwise, grace would no longer be grace. What then? Israel failed to obtain what it was seeking. The elect obtained it, but the rest were hardened. As it is written, God gave them a spirit of stupor, eyes that would not see and ears that would not hear, down to this very day. And David says, let their table become a snare and a trap, a stumbling block and a retribution for them. Let their eyes be darkened so that they cannot see and bend their backs forever. That the first thing we see is that God is still graciously saving. Has God totally rejected His people? Paul's answer is definitive, absolutely not. And that's important because there's this idea that has existed throughout history called replacement theology, that God is done with the nation of Israel, with the ethnic people, Israelites, and that the church has entirely simply replaced them. This is false. It's just simply not true. God has not rejected the Jewish people entirely. He is not done with ethnic Jews. Why does this matter? That's the question. Because like I said as I introed this section, if God cannot be trusted to keep His promises, the universe is in deep trouble. Because God has promised that one day He will recreate this entire universe. There is a new heavens and a new earth that has been promised to us. Sin will be eradicated. Evil will be removed. So if God cannot be trusted, the entire universe is in jeopardy. Paul declares that God is faithful to fulfill what He promised. Paul denies the conclusion that some may have come to that he has rejected his people. I mean, in, in chapter 21 of, excuse me, verse 21 of chapter 10, the, the last thing we read was this, but of Israel, he says, all day long I have held on my hands to a disobedient and contrary people. 
And so there are people in the church right now, this is why Paul is addressing this, people who are saying, well, clearly God's done with the Jewish people. There's no hope for them whatsoever. They're completely um, erased or eclipsed. Paul denies this, that God has rejected his people. Maybe I can put it another way. Paul denies that God has failed to overcome their rejection of him. And he now wants to prove that this is the case. We like to to say, we use the the saying, right, the proof is in the pudding. In other words, let's look at some results so we can verify the truthfulness of what's being said. Well, Paul kind of does that right here. So I want to show you first as he builds his case um, how Paul works. Here's what he says, the proof is in the Paul. Paul's the pudding. That's what he's saying right here. If, If you just read it, look what it says. He says, for I myself am an Israelite a descendant of Abraham, a member of the tribe of Benjamin. God has not rejected his people whom he foreknew. Paul says, you want to know how we know that God has not finished with the Jewish people? Look at me. By the way, what he says here is in the emphatic, I myself, Paul is holding himself up as case in point. He's the pudding. And like Paul, God is continuing to save Jewish people who turn to Jesus and place their faith in Him and receive and experience all the blessings promised to all of God's people. By the way, what an unlikely example Paul is. I think that's kind of part of the point. One of the reasons Paul points to himself as an example of God's faithfulness and willingness to save the Jewish people is because he is an incredible example of someone who is so hardened against God Himself. I mean, listen to what he says about himself. It'll be on the screen in 1 Timothy chapter 1, verses 12 through 17. He says these words. I think it is. Maybe I didn't put it on there. There it is. He says, I thank him who has given me strength, Christ Jesus our Lord, because he judged me faithful, appointing me to his service. Listen to this. Though formerly I was a blasphemer, persecutor, an insolent opponent... But I received mercy because I had acted ignorantly in unbelief, and the grace of our Lord overflowed for me with the faith and love that are in Christ Jesus. The saying is trustworthy and deserving of full acceptance that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners of whom I am the foremost. But I received mercy for this very reason, that in me, as the foremost, Jesus Christ might display his perfect patience as an example to those who are to believe in him for eternal life, to the King of ages, immortal, invisible, the only God, be honor and glory forever and ever. Amen. You see what Paul is saying? Look, if God can bring such a hostile, hardened, and violent Jew such as me into his people, if God can save me, then God can save anyone. Don't give up, in other words, on those hardened Jews in the synagogue, those religious leaders and those religious people that are are all around you. Paul says, look at me, just as, as my hardened state was not the end of the story, so it may be for some of them. And this is such an incredible encouragement to our souls, isn't it? I mean, how often do we simply give up on people who reject the gospel? 
How often do, do we work hard at sharing the gospel with somebody and see them maybe, maybe really strongly and hard-heartedly just reject Jesus, maybe mock it, even spurn us, and we throw the towel in? How often we often simply adhere to the principle of, of red apple evangelism, which, by the way, isn't a bad principle. You guys know the principle of red apple evangelism? You know, that's like, hey, look, look for the ripe fruit, right? You want to evangelize? Well, look for the person who's ready. They're ripened. They're, they're ready to hear the gospel. That's a great principle because God has often primed people to be ready to hear and receive the gospel. Here's the problem. We don't always know who that is. Not only that, God can take a sour, unriped apple and He can ripen it overnight if He so chooses. No chemicals necessary. In an instant, God can take someone who is so hard against the gospel, and listen, maybe even because of your loving, gracious persistence, God can soften that person in an instant. Such a good reminder because some of you, maybe you've been preaching the gospel to your family or friends for years, and maybe some of you, you've given, I've talked to people who've like, yeah, I just, you know, I, I just committed them to the Lord 15 years ago. And maybe God's saying, listen, listen, don't give up hope. Go again in, in grace and in truth. Don't throw the towel in. Verse 2, Paul declares, God has not rejected his people whom he foreknew. And here Paul's words intentionally, they echo two places in the Greek Old Testament. By the way, so thankful for the last three weeks. Um, Miles and Pastor Brian preaching this series on being anchored in the Word of God, and I was reflecting, listen, on this idea of what it means to meditate on the Word of God, especially this week. How important it is for us to be diligent students of the Word of God. We can't expect to just get everything at a cursory glance of the Word of God, and this is a case in point. Here's what I want you to see. Paul uses this word that God has not rejected his people and he is intentionally, let me say this, he is intentionally echoing two places in the Old Testament. In other words, he's expecting that when we hear these words, or when the Jews that he was preaching to heard these words, that something maybe would trigger in their mind, and they would be brought back to, to inspect and look at these two different scripture verses for verification. There's two places in the Old Testament, in the Greek Old Testament, that use the same words that Paul uses here but in the future tense. The first is in 1 Samuel, and the second is in Psalm 94. And in 1 Samuel, just consider the context here. If you're not familiar with 1 Samuel, this will be helpful. The people of Israel have been unfaithful to God. They're in the land at this point. And if you know the context, remember this, they're looking around at all the other nations, and what do they do? They say, why can't we have a king like all the other nations? We want a king like their kings. Samuel, the prophet, goes to God, and he's frustrated with the people because it's a sign of, of their rejection of God. Think about that. It's a sign of their rejection of God. In fact, he says that to Samuel. He says to Samuel, it's not they, they haven't rejected you, Samuel. They've rejected me as their king. That's, that's the issue here. And in chapter 12, the people are convicted of this sin. Samuel exhorts them to repent, and then he assure, reassures them with these words. Think about this. In the midst of their rejection, listen to what it says in Psalm 12, uh, 12 excuse me, 1 Samuel 12, verse 22. It says this, for the Lord will not forsake or reject his people for his great name's sake, 
because it has pleased the Lord to make you a people for himself. The power of those words in the midst of the rejection is staggering. It's staggering. And the second illusion is Psalm 94, where where God's people are, are actually suffering. The righteous are suffering under the oppression of an arrogant and unbelieving leadership in the nation of Israel. God reassures them in verse 14 of Psalm 94, again on the screen, and look at what he says. He says, the Lord will not forsake his people. He will not abandon his heritage. And Paul is giving a nod to these verses, and he's saying, look, this is true. God promised this was true. This is still true, and it will remain true. God did not and has not rejected the Jewish people. So does that mean that all Jewish people are saved by virtue of their ethnicity? No, of course not. And he's gone to great lengths to demonstrate that that is not the case. In fact, he adds here an important clarification. Did you notice that? His people whom he foreknew. As we saw both in chapters 8 and chapters 9, to foreknow is to forelove somebody. It is to forechoose somebody. Those whom God foreknew are those who He also predestined and also those He also called and justified and glorified according to Romans 8, 29 and 30. Those whom He foreknew, He entered into a relationship with from all eternity, from eternity past. And this, this was never Israel as a race without exception Just as it included Isaac, not Ishmael, as Paul has argued in chapter 9, Jacob, not Esau, it always included some, but not all, of ethnic Israel. According to chapter 9, verse 6, not all Israel is Israel. There is a physical Israel and a spiritual Israel. And now he develops this further. He says, look, the proof is in the Paul, but then he, he goes on to say this, the proof is in the prophets. The proof is in the prophet. And he goes back into the Old Testament and he gives us this example from a specific moment in Israel's history when even though Israel had forsook their covenant Lord, God nevertheless preserved a remnant. He goes to the prophet Elijah, that's who he references here in chapter 11. He says, do you not know what the Scripture says of Elijah, how he appeals to God against Israel? Again, Israel is in in disobedience and unbelief. They're in absolute, almost wholesale rejection of the God. They've abandoned God for false idols. They're sacrificing to these false idols. It appears that no one who loves the Lord is left in the nation of Israel. Look at what they've done. They've killed the prophets. They've demolished God's altars. And here is Elijah saying, I alone am left, and they seek my life. Now, all this takes place after, you know, the the famous battle in 1 Kings 18, where it's Elijah um, battling against the prophets of Baal, Baal. And he calls down fire from heaven, you know, this duel that's taking place. And, and he says, okay, you guys go ahead and you call on Baal and you can see if he can burn up this, 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 cow, this calf, this cow upon the altar. And they, you know, they cut themselves and they cry out to God. They scream all day long and into the night and nothing, 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 nothing. So much so that Elijah looks and goes, where's your God? Maybe he's out back in the outhouse taking care of some business. Seriously, that's what he says. I mean, that's a paraphrase, but you know what I'm saying. He's like, what's wrong with your God? And then he says, hey, how about you just soak this, with, just soak this thing with water? 
soak it with water, soak it, soak it, soak it, soak it. He calls down fire from heaven, and God answers and responds and burns up the sacrifice, showing that he is God and Baal is not. And now here, here is Elijah. He's fleeing from Queen Jezebel, and he's like, look, God, we're, I'm the only one left, God. Like, poor Elijah. It's so foolish to think like that, and yet sometimes our hearts can get there. By the way, I, I heard recently, I was told that there, there was someone, another pastor, who had said that there are actually only four faithful churches left on the earth, and sadly, we're not one of them. <laughs> Sometimes you can look around and you can get the feeling like, well, nobody else is faithful. Who's left? And this is the same issue that Paul is dealing with. Where where are the Jews? Who's left? Will God be faithful when his people are not? When they've rejected him, is God still going to be faithful? And God answers the prophet Elijah as we see here, and he declares, I have reserved for myself 7,000 who have not bowed the knee to Baal. You think you're the only one? I got 7,000 that you don't even know about, Elijah. You don't know what you're talking about. Even during the darkest days of the nation of Israel, times when idolatry and wickedness flowed like water in the streets, God still preserved a faithful remnant for himself. And he looks at this, this remnant and he applies it to his present time in the face of Israel's large-scale rejection of Jesus. And he says in verse 5 and 6, listen, so too at the present time there is a remnant chosen by grace. But if it is by grace, it is no longer on the basis of works. Otherwise, grace would no longer be grace. You know what he's saying? Like, look, look, I am still saving. Paul's case in point, the early church, there were plenty of Jews being saved. I mean, the earliest church was all Jewish people. They were the remnant at that present time. God was saving Jewish people into the church, and he saved them the exact same way he saved everyone else, by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. And he says, even though things look grim for Israel right now, yes, yes, there there are very few Israelites coming to faith in Jesus Christ right now, Paul, at this present time. So too, listen, in our present generation. But God has preserved a remnant for himself. And again, he, he wants to reaffirm, as we've just read here, that this is all by grace and not by race. It's by grace and not works. We've seen this all through the book of Romans. No one has a claim upon God. Nobody. We have all de-godded God. He's made it so clear. Jews and Gentiles, we're all guilty. There's none righteous. No, not one. He doesn't want them to think for a moment that the Jews might be saved simply by virtue of their ancestral connection to Abraham or by their adherence to the law. God saves the remnant the same way He saves the Gentiles. He says it's by grace. And by the way, when He says it's no longer on the basis of works, He's not saying that it was once on the basis of works. He's just addressing the common Jewish problem, the way they viewed the law, as if they could actually obey it and accomplish salvation. I mean, look at what he says here about grace and works and their relationship to one another. He says, if it is by grace, it is no longer on the basis of works. Otherwise, grace would 
no longer be grace. Listen, if, if you add any kind of works righteousness to grace, we, we had two great testimonies of people who came out of the Catholic Church, and, and unfortunately, the greatest problem with the, the, the soteriology, that's a fancy word for, for describing the understanding of salvation in the Catholic Church, is that it is both grace plus works. You need Jesus, but you also have to accomplish these things in order to be saved. But Paul here confronts that idea directly. And you know what he says? He says, listen, if you add any works into grace, it doesn't just dilute grace. It doesn't just minimize the power and impact of grace. It utterly destroys grace. It destroys it. Maybe we can think of it like this. If, if we want to have any kind of works and grace, it, it's like this. We'd be like a, a tax payer with rights. That's the way that we, we treat God. You know, you see those signs like every once in a while, your tax dollars at work. It's like, oh, I, I put money in, therefore, I should see some kind of return on my investment. That's what we expect as, as tax payers. Maybe we need to adjust our expectations. <laughs> But you see, we often treat God like that, as if somehow we've come to God and we've kind of paid our dues, we've earned our way into God's good graces, and now, therefore, God owes us something. But it doesn't work like that. God looks at every one of us, and if you want to say, God, you owe me something because of how good I've been, because of, of you know, look at me, I'm, I'm such a, a prized possession, God, you should want me on your team, as if God's looking, you go, ooh, this is such a good deal. I was like, I owe you nothing. Listen, I owe you nothing but judgment. We've seen that in Romans 9 through 11. I, you need to hear this. I owe you nothing but judgment. All your works are like filthy rags. If you deserved it, church, listen, this is so good. If you deserved it, it wouldn't be grace. Everyone is guilty, both Jew and Gentile. Men and women, public school, Christian school, homeschool. Everyone is guilty. We are never dealing with morally neutral people. Therefore, we are all in need of grace. Amen? And his point is so simple. The people of God can never and will never be defined by race, but only by grace. Never by merit, but only by mercy. Always, God's people are defined by the gracious choice and foreknowledge of God. Listen, your identity, your primary identity is this. Listen, you need to sit in this for just a moment. If you're a Christian here today, you know, I know, you, I know the battle in your heart to define yourself by so many other things, lesser things. I am this, I am that, I've done this, I've done that. But you just, listen, just, just sit in this for a moment. Your greatest identity is found in this reality. God looks at you, listen, and all of you, some of you need to hear this today because it's been a tough week, maybe it's been a tough month or a tough year, and sin has overwhelmed you, and condemnation has crippled you, and you're looking at your life, and you're like, I'm so, I'm so worthless. I feel terrible. I feel so much shame and guilt. And you know what God says about you? He's like, get that all out of your mind right now. I knew all of that sin. I knew all of those struggles ever before I ever created you. And before the foundation of the world, I chose you. I love you. Isn't that awesome? 
Forever, forever you will not stand under condemnation. You will forever and only stand under God's grace. And that's exactly what he is driving into our hearts. Now make no mistake about it. There is a relationship between grace and works. But it goes like this. Grace first, then works. Not works, then grace. Your good works do not procure your salvation, nor do they secure your salvation. Good works flow from God's good grace. What about those who aren't given grace? Well, that's what he addresses next. He says that they are hardened, and I want you to see this too. God, secondly, is still judicially hardening. God is still judicially hardening. He says, what then? Israel failed to obtain what it was seeking. The elect obtained it, but the rest were hardened. And he goes on to quote three separate Old Testament passages. Two of them merged together in this first quote. The second one is its own quote from the Psalms. And in Romans, we have consistently seen that God gives people over to what they want. That's, that's God's judicial hardening. It's His justice. And this is what God must do if He is to remain just. He hardens people. Listen to this. this You've got to follow this logic here. God hardens people who harden themselves against Him. It's like back in Romans 1 when He talks about the sin of, of the Gentiles, right? They pursue, they, they worship the created things instead of the Creator. And then what does it say? God gave them over to it. He gave them up to their sin. They traded what is not natural, what is unnatural, for what is natural, for the other way around. They traded what is natural for the unnatural. They, they, they wanted what God didn't want for them. They wanted to rebel against Him. They would not acknowledge God as Creator. They would not give thanks to Him. They would not honor Him as God. They simply wanted to be their own God and live their own way. Doesn't that sound so familiar? I mean, that's not only our culture. Sadly, even as Christians, that's so often our own hearts. And the Scriptures say that God gave them up. You want this? Fine. Have at it. You think this will satisfy? You think this is going to be better than, than what I have to offer? Go for it. Paul explains that they have been judicially hardened because they persist in a pattern of works righteousness thinking that they can somehow obey the law, make themselves righteous, be good enough to to merit God's kindness and favor and forgiveness. They were hardened as a judgment for their unbelief. The hardening that happened to Pharaoh now becomes the staggering parallel of God's people, ethnic Israel. It is now God's own people who are hardened to Him, This might have been a stunning statement, by the way, to some of Paul's Jewish readers, but Paul drives the point home by again using two Old Testament quotations. He wants them to see that this is perfectly in line with the Scriptures that they so love and believe. First quotation is really a blend of Deuteronomy 29 verse 4 and Isaiah 29 verse 10. And in Deuteronomy, that's his kind of sermon to the Israelites before they they march into the promised land. 
Moses draws attention to a people who have seen and yet not seen. They've seen God's grace in rescuing and delivering them, His faithfulness over and over, yet God gave them eyes to see or ears. God had not given them sorry, eyes to see or ears to hear. They had it all externally, but they had unchanged hearts. It makes me think of the warning in Hebrews chapter 3, verses 7 through 12, where he warns them not to have these evil, unbelieving hearts, not to hear the word of God and then harden themselves against it and rebel like those people did in the wilderness. See, in the Old Testament, they had heard the gospel preached in shadows and types and yet had not responded to the gospel by faith. And as a result, they were hardened. And he blends in here Isaiah 29 that God had given them a a spirit of stupor When they hear the gospel preached, it's it's like a closed brook. It's like a sealed scroll. Why? Because God actively hides himself from them. God has not opened their eyes, nor has he opened their ears. And until he does, they they will not get it. You know, Jesus actually said the same thing. He said that the the words of these parables that he was giving them, they were veiled to many. And listen to actually what he says in Matthew chapter 11, verse 25. He says, at that time, Jesus declared, I thank you, Father, Lord of heaven and earth, that you have hidden these things from the wise and understanding and received, revealed them to little children. The arrogant, stubborn, self-righteous, they cannot see and believe. Why? Why? Because they put all their hope and trust in their own righteousness. They think they can be good enough. They will not, they will not embrace the reality that they are sinners, that they are dead in their trespasses and sins, and their only hope is that God would put his love upon them, that God would divinely rescue them. This kind of hardening, it happened in Paul's day and it happens in ours. It can happen to many, like people in the church, the religious unbeliever that he is referenced constantly in in Romans 9.31, again, for example, where he says these words, but that Israel who pursued a law that would lead to righteousness did not succeed in reaching that law. Or in chapter 10, verse 3, where he says, for being ignorant of the righteousness of God and seeking to establish their own, they did not submit to God's righteousness. And what they trusted in became their worst enemy. They thought they could be righteous enough or good enough, and in the end, that was their undoing. Which is why Paul quotes finally from Psalm 69. This is a psalm that is messianic in nature. It's quoted often in the New Testament in reference to Jesus. But here, here, Paul uses it to show that the enemies of Jesus are Israel, many of these ethnic Israelites who reject Jesus as Lord and Savior. They've looked at Jesus, they've heard about Jesus, but they refuse to bow the knee to Jesus. And in the psalm, it says this, that their table became a snare and a trap, a stumbling block and a retribution for them. Let their eyes be darkened so that they cannot see and bend their backs forever. This is a staggering pronouncement of judgment. What they thought was a delicious meal, their self-righteousness, will be their eternal downfall. And these verses together, they they lay out God's judgment against all those who reject Jesus 
as king. A hardening that was at the same time their fault and the work of God. But it says here that the elect obtained it. How? By grace through faith. That's it. How did they obtain this salvation? It is by grace through faith. And listen, I know, much to our chagrin, the Bible is not interested in resolving the, the philosophical puzzle before us of God's sovereignty and human responsibility, but rather it upholds this theological tension. And as we, we kind of let this simmer in our hearts, I, I want to maybe say a couple of things, maybe a few things by way of application this really ought to produce a few responses in our hearts. The first one is for unbelievers. If, if you're here today and you're an unbeliever, you're not a Christian, this has something to say to you. And, and just for the record, we just, I, I want to communicate how grateful we are that you are here. For whatever reason you're here, we're really thankful. And, and I'm most thankful because you get to hear these words, that God has something to say to you specifically. If you're an unbeliever here today, the response that this should produce in you is repentance and faith. That's the response. The call to you today is do not harden your hearts against the grace of God. Do not believe, listen, do not believe you are good enough. Do not believe that you could somehow make yourself acceptable to God. Do not ever believe that. Don't buy into that lie that it's about what you can do and that somehow simply being a good enough person is going to allow you entrance into God's eternal glory forever and ever and ever. That's, 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 a, that's a lie from the depths of hell. Satan wants you to believe that because he doesn't want you to receive the salvation that God wants you to receive this very day. Do not harden your hearts against the grace of God. Rather, listen, turn in repentance and faith. Believe that you are a sinner. Believe that you are, you're an absolute wretched sinner. You've rebelled against God. You don't live for His glory. You haven't lived for Him. You don't obey His word, nor can you, because you are so filled with sin. Everything in you is corrupt. Your mind, your thoughts, your actions, even the good things you try to do in your life, they're not done for Him. They're done for you. And repent of that today. See that God says, listen, I don't care about what you've done in the past. I can wash all of that away. I don't care about the sin that you have lived in. I don't care about the sin that you have committed. I can pay for that. It's not too great for me. It's not too great. And if you come to me today, if you believe that I came for you, that I died in your place, that I, I paid the penalty for your sin. I bled on that cross and paid the penalty that you owed so that I can give you what you are not owed and what you will never deserve. I can shower you and lavish you with my grace this very moment. God says, believe today and you shall be saved. Declare him Lord and master. Cling to him as your only hope in life and death and you shall be saved. For the believer, let me say two things to you. Rather than raise accusations of unfairness or inequity because you struggle with this tension of God's sovereignty and, and human responsibility, listen, our response should instead 
be humble adoration and praise as we bow before our mighty and sovereign Lord. Do you realize that you are here today as a Christian? You are saved and accepted only because God chose you. Only because God is gracious. The only reason you believe is that God foreknew you before you were ever born. He foreloved you. You chose him only because he first chose you. He removed your hardened heart of stone and you replaced it with a softened heart of flesh so that you might repent and believe, so that you might love Christ and so that you might live for him in his glory. And, and these truths, listen, they, they should lead us to a, another's thought that's expressed so well by, by John Calvin. He says this, because at times, you know, like Elijah, we can, you know, God, what's going on? Am I the only one left? Listen to what John Calvin says. He said, let this truth remain fixed in our hearts that the church, which may not appear as anything to our sight, is nourished by the secret providence of God. Let us also remember that those who calculate the number of the elect by the measure of their own senses are acting in folly and ignorance. For God has a way accessible to himself but concealed from us by which he wonderfully preserves his elect even when all seems lost. You know, church, I think this is such an important encouragement for us. You know, we cannot judge the success of the gospel, the church, even our own personal evangelism, merely by what we can see or cannot see in any given moment. Instead, we must judge it by faith. We must believe that God is still working, that God is still moving, that God is still saving, even when it doesn't seem like it, even when it doesn't look like it. The church in history has often looked small and insignificant, Massive revival, though desirable, is not the only, nor is it the normative mark of God's moving. He is often moving in what one author calls patient ferment. It's happening slowly. It's often imperceptible to the naked eye. God is at work, church. That's what we want to believe. That's what we must believe, that, that He is faithful to His Word, that He is building His church, and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. Amen? And yet sometimes it is so hard, but we need to see that, listen, like the, the small mustard seed, the church is imperceptibly growing and will one day, this is awesome, it will one day fill the entirety of creation. Like God told Abraham way back in Genesis 12 and 15, Abraham, come on here, look up into the sky and, and count the stars if you can. So too will your offspring be. And although only a remnant, listen, of Israel belongs to Christ, there will one day be a great multitude from every tribe, nation, and tongue. Just take a moment, look, look around church for just a quick second. Just have a good look at one another, it's okay. We're part of the same family. Don't be awkward about it. When God made that promise to Abraham, I want you to think about this. Thousands of years ago, you were each 
in Christ, one of those stars he was talking about. The blood of the Lamb is powerful and mighty to save. And he is saving an innumerable host of sinners. God is faithful to his word and he will save all of his people. Not one will be lost. Nothing will get in God's way. And because we have this hope, listen church, we do not lose heart. Instead, we take courage, we press on, we move forward, and our job as the church is to ensure that all nations, including the Jews, hear the message of the gospel. Our mission as a church is to carry the gospel to the ends of the earth so that, like Paul, we can declare, if he saved me, he can save anybody. Our sins may be many, but his mercy is more. Amen?